0: Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. It is hot. Summertime
1: hot. How you doing? <laughs> not here. It's not. It's raining and cold, which was perfect for my soccer game today. Oh, mm, that's what you call perfect. Uh, well, did you win? Uh, I didn't win. And uh, dear listeners, Sandy knows that I didn't win because I started off by telling her that I didn't <laughs> win before we hit record. <laughs> 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 womp, womp. No, ladies, aim Kalbab <laughs> kicked our ass. So that sucked. I guess it's not a perfect day. <laughs> you know what? Even a day that I'm losing on the soccer field, if I walk off the field uninjured, it's pretty perfect.
0: I mean, that's great for you because I, I have been injured what feels like all year, <laughs> which has really oh, no. been cramping my uh, Capoeira style. Oh, yeah, it to- it totally sucks. But I mean, it's part of um, it's part of the game. I suppose, uh, that you get injured. So right now my wrist really sucks. It's, it's, it's hurting my writing. It's hurting my typing. It's hurting my, my movements in which I have to hold myself up on my hands. And, uh, it's hurting my ability to k- chop vegetables, but you know what? <laughs> <laughs> I would still do all the things that got my wrist to this point. I'm just going to be a, a little bit more loving to it this week.
1: Aww. Oh, that sucks. Do you want to know something, Sandy? I want to just shout someone out right now because um, he made some amazing art listening to the Daily News podcast, and I just think that it is so awesome. Yo, I love that. Okay, shout out. Yeah, so shout out to Ricky, who found at a used clothing store a tank top that had all of these little miniature soldiers, toy soldiers on it. And while listening to the Daily News, he painted flowers over all of the ends of the guns of the toy soldiers and the result is so beautiful. This is someone who I know from university and uh, who you know, I haven't been able to see, I don't think, since then, but we've stayed in touch. And so if you're making art to our podcasts, like, you're awesome. You're so awesome.
0: I freaking love that. That's so great. Um, And in the spirit of that, why don't we thank some people? Guess what? What? This week we have to thank Aimee Lee, Thanks too much, meet thanks too much, and an anonymous donation that came through Interact.
1: Aww, thanks to you all, yeah. and especially thanks to the mysterious thanks anonymous donation, all. whether that was Erin O'Toole or whether that was someone who was afraid of getting fired at their job. It doesn't matter who it is. We love that, and we love you. We, we do. Thank you so much.
0: One announcement from the show also is that we are going to be taking a little bit of a summer break. You have, don't worry, one more week of us. Uh, we, we're going to do one more show and then we're going to take some time off for the summer, um, and do some relaxing and spending some time with the fams. Uh, and then we'll be back in September. Mm.
1: Yes. And I know it sucks. I know it sucks because it's also, this actually also includes the daily news. Um, I, I just won't be able to do it because I'm going away. But um, Sandy, we have at least one live show lined up for the fall. That's right. So stay tuned for details on that. It's in Toronto. It will be announced more formally when we're actually ready to sell tickets. We're trying to work on a special musical guest. So hang on to your hats for that. And do you know, Sandy, I got I got a suggestion this past week that maybe it's time for us to come to Winnipeg.
0: Whoa, Winnipeg. I'm, I'm not mad at that. I'm into it. I like Winnipeg. <laughs>
1: Do you know what? It's so funny because of all the options in Canada to be mad at, like, I honestly wouldn't be mad at anything except for, I mean, I would go to Brandon and I've spent a lot of time in Brandon, but I, I wouldn't love it. I have to be honest. I've had some kind of some <laughs> shitty times in Brandon. Um, but Why Brandon? <laughs> Just because um, it's so random it is. But um, let's just say that I saw some violent homophobia and was involved in it, um, not in the violence of getting it, but receiving it, giving it, not receiving it. jeez. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? There's still good people there. And um, and, you know, everyone knows what I think about Vancouver. But our last Vancouver live show was so special and amazing that I have to say I wouldn't be sad about any anywhere in Canada, but Winnipeg, especially my third favorite city in Canada. Uh, if it happens, we will let you know. If you want to help make it happen, it uh, looks like right now what we might need is maybe just another group partner, but really uh, working with someone on something. So we will see.
0: Yeah, I was going to suggest that the place that I would be mad at going is Vancouver. But I, you know, I really have to eat my words because <laughs> the Vancouver live yeah. show that we just did was actually so great. It was so amazing. And it was a day where for those of you who are there, um, you will know it was uh, a snowstorm like Vancouver rarely ever gets and still so many people came out uh, to to spend time with us and to be a part of the live show and it was great. And of course, you can always listen to that show that we did um, in our archives. But today, again, two really great topics uh, to talk about today, uh, neither of which are great in the sense of um, they are good things, but great in the sense of they are necessary for us to talk about um, one that, uh, that is a little bit closer to home
1: yes yes one well not even just close to home one is the foundation of this country um, and so Sandy I'm, sh- I'm sure you've been seeing what's happening at Camp Morgan at the Brady Street landfill in Winnipeg speaking of Winnipeg folks are holding down a blockade Stopping access to the landfill, demanding that the province, the city, the federal government search the landfill for two women's bodies that they believe, that not just they, that police also believe are located at the landfill. Now, they're not just that, that landfill, but also other landfills in Winnipeg, though the, the Brady Street landfill has become the focal point. And so people have been creating art and having drum circles and praying and uh, being together, demonstrating how important it is to physically occupy space while also calling attention to the need for something as basic as a landfill search. Now, we're not going to talk only about the landfill search, but also like what does it say, Sandy, that Canada, that the province of Manitoba... That the city of Winnipeg are so resistant to searching these landfills for bodies that they know are probably there. Where are we at on understanding, on reckoning with, on uh, on on undoing colonialism in this country?
0: Yeah, I think uh, it says a lot. I think it says that a lot of what uh, Canada has how Canada has presented itself with respect to reconciliation, with respect to having a nation to nation relationship with first nations people with respect to, um, reconciliation generally amongst indigenous people. I think that we can uh, quite clearly see that all of this has been lip service and that, you know, the powers that be are not genuinely interested, uh, in making, this place a place that is actually going to um to, to decolonize and to do what's necessary uh to do right by people as they have been saying that they would i i there's nothing that gives me any confidence that that's where canada wants to go and he, like seeing I mean, many people have pointed out the differences between—I mean, us included—the differences between the way that the government has responded um, in this particular case uh, versus how the government responded to the billionaires um, who were likely dead from the beginning, uh, who imploded on the submersible. But I mean, it's—it's it's way beyond that. It's it, the evidence of of this sort of callous disregard is all over the way that the Canadian judicial system works, the way that politicians continue to ignore um, the, the various impacts of colonialism on uh, indigenous people and other people. And so, um, yeah, this, this seems like par for the course. And it is... Really, really fucking frustrating. And, you know, Nora, I was listening to um, another news podcast this week that I won't mention what it is. But I just think one of the things that is an issue, and we were talking about this just before we started recording, in in how we understand these these issues and how the government responds to these issues and how we talk about it, is we're, like, fully stuck in a place where we cannot get beyond the... Uh, You know, like, is there colonialism? Is this bad? Like, yes, this is bad. Okay, yes, this is bad. Um, How do we know it's bad? Here are the ways that we know that it's bad. Okay, great. Are there people who deny that it's bad? Yes, people deny that it's bad because of this. And it's like, oh, wow, very terrible. And that's where it ends, you know? And I think that we have to be a little bit better than this, a little bit more sophisticated and understand how we move past this very limiting conversation
1: into action. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's so important to mention just how rotten the entire system goes right up through the judiciary. I know a lot of people online have been sharing words from Justice Sheldon Lanchbury Uh, Lanchberry is the justice who has um, who has written the injunction that was supposed to clear the protesters from from blocking the landfill. Now, the protesters have refused to unblock the landfill. Uh, There's a beautiful photo of people burning the injunction that's been circulating online. But Lanchberry, I'm not sure if you saw this, Sandy, but... He was trying to like empathize, I guess, with people, try to explain how he understood their pain. And while when folks responded to say, what are you like, how can you know our pain? This justice, this judge court guy uh, responds to say, well, he he grew up poor. So he understands what it's like to be indigenous. Oh, and of course, people have been. Yeah. Very, very angry about this online and uh, should be very angry about this online. But I think that it just is another very small example of how white people in this country, we are so um, we have we are so capable of just painting all of these issues with a single brush and being like, yeah, there's some bad stuff out there, but it's not that bad. Or "I've, I've experienced this, too. Like, I know what you're going through. And it's like, this is colonization. It's neo colonization. It's the two forces together. And, and no, no, structurally, not even the poorest white person has any idea of what colonization feels like in the way that an indigenous person feels in this country. Um, so people have obviously called for him to be, uh, removed from the bench or for him to resign or whatever, but it's just so like indicative to me of what exactly is the problem among those, uh, first of all, the, the tier of people that do have power, like a judge that has a power to grant an injunction, but then also, you know, more generally, like, as you say, Sandy, we get stuck in these kinds of, uh, scripts over and over and over, and there's no... Exiting them because the scripts are so strong that it's like we're constantly rediscovering things, like as if we need to rediscover colonialism over and over and over, and yet we do. While this is all happening, there's also a, a you know a crisis that has been ongoing for many years in British Columbia and and has been getting much worse in Alberta. I don't know if you heard me mention this on the Daily News, Sandy, but. You know, life expectancy for First Nations men and women in Alberta has dropped by seven years on average in the last few years. Most of that is related to the toxic drug crisis, which, of course, you know, Alberta in in April, the last month with any uh, data related to this, just had its, its highest number of toxic drug related deaths in the province. And. That drop in life expectancy has now grown the gap of life expectancy between First Nations men and women and non-First Nations men and women in Alberta to be 18 years. That
0: is... 18 years. Unconscionable. That is absolutely unconscionable. That is disgusting. That is... That is an emergency situation. There should be a uh, a state of emergency called. If that was the case for like any other community in Canada, like the government, if this was happening to to white communities and like in one province, the, the government would call a state of emergency to try to figure out what was happening and to try to address the issue. Right. Like we, we, we just know that this is how um, the government, the government just straight up supports colonialism like (laughs) it just is what it is I mean what were the comments Uh, from the premier from premier Heather Stephenson she says that they can't search the landfill because it may disrupt the judicial process uh, what judicial process exactly is going to be disrupted here by doing investigative work that takes place in any other crime like what what is it what's what is the problem She's saying that she doesn't want to financially support it because oh we don't know what the, it's gonna, it could take one to three years like this could be a big issue so so there's investigations that are done all the time the only the only conclusion to take from those sorts of remarks is that this is somebody who supports uh, colonialism and actually does not care to undo uh, the impacts of colonization uh, on. Uh, particular communities. This is not, you know, like, the, the, so much more could be asked for. What is being asked for here is to, like, do a regular investigation. And it seems like really. I don't know, just really fucking unconscionable that that can't be done. And so the question of, like, moving beyond this and understanding that, like, you know, the judicial process, um, our politicians, uh, the way that Canada works is, like, dependent on these sorts of structures is, is really important for us to move past these sort of, like, stalemates that we find ourselves in, where folks don't seem to know what to do next, except for to say, hmm, is this is this colonialism and for us to be like mm yes
1: yeah yeah like and and there's so many concrete things that could be done and and i just you know part of colonization is that white institutions or institutions that are imbued with white supremacy have a hard time Exiting the logic of white supremacy because it's everywhere because it's it's literally touching every single thing. And so, you know, of course, a state of emergency should be called when we have, um, you know, this this data showing the life expectancy drop in Alberta or the disproportionate impact that the toxic drug uh, crisis is having on indigenous people. And of course, that's not only in Alberta, that's that's happening all over Canada. But You know, beyond that, it's like on every single issue, there are groups that are trying to intervene in different ways. And like, unless your interventions capture how the most marginalized by colonization are are impacted by the issues, you're never going to cut at the core of what your real problem is. Right. So, you know, if you're working on on houselessness and homelessness or or, you know, people who live outside because they can't afford anywhere else to live. And you don't have an understanding of the fact that Canada literally right to the, the very beginning of, of Canada's origins, land is bought and sold and commodified and housing is bought and sold and commodified and that is all done to make people Money And it's the same thing that's happening today. And there's a direct line between the foundation of Canada and its land owning white Christian founders and the money that is made off of the housing industry. Right. So like we we really need to uh, think deeper about these things, uh, maybe move ourselves offline where we're tempted to simply talk about these things and really reflect on how in all aspects of our organizing can we bring in elements of like Canada's colonial underpinnings and reality to make sure that we're actually fighting these things on the different issues where we can identify them.
0: Yeah. And I think another place to go with something like this and, and, and any, any sort of issue that we may be fighting um, you mentioned, um, homelessness or houselessness. It could also be uh, the climate crisis. You know, the, the question of trying to force government to do the right thing, like that's always, sure, we should do that. You know, like that is something that, um, you know, we are forced to pay into a system that system should work for us to do what you can to make the system work for you. Absolutely. We should be making sure that we're doing what we can to. Uh, make sure that the people around us in our communities know about the issues. So, you know, whether that's uh, having campaigns, whether that's doing direct action, um, all of that. Very good. Where I think we sometimes struggle is taking the next step, which is like, okay, if the government isn't doing this, do we have the ability to do it? The thing that we are trying to 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 force them to do. And if we do have the ability to do it, how can we organize getting that together? Like, are there um, groups like union groups who have access to the types of materials that would be needed in order to to do some sort of search or to force at least something, some sort of confrontation um,
1: that can be done? Are these workers unionized? Are the dump workers unionized? Are the city officials like, you know, (laughs)
0: like. Like, how are the people who are involved, organized elsewhere in their lives that we can have those organizations, you know, whether it's unions or uh, religious institutions or um, uh, maybe it's places uh, where folks get regular education? I don't know. Are there ways that those institutions uh, can be brought along into the next step? I think that. You know, sometimes we talk on this podcast a lot about uh, uh, political imagination and what can be done. And for folks who are, you know, people who are especially if you're, you know, a, a part of the majority, you know, connect with these communities, ask what uh, what is what sort of supports are needed. But also think about how you can hold your own government and your own institutions accountable beyond just the ask to the government? What's next? Like, how can you move forward uh, with taking some sort of direct action?
1: Yes, yes. And then, you know, eventually, you'll find yourself up against the logic of the Canadian system in and of itself, which is that this whole country is a colonial project. And that There will always be failures from formal political parties that believe in the structures of this country as being reformable and not understanding that the very foundation, the very constitution that we have, the way that that business operates on these lands, the way that workers are exploited on these lands, they are all built and baked into the crust of what Canada is. And We cannot lose sight of that, because if we start to imagine that reconciliation is a question of money or a question of dialogue or a question of benevolence from a white majority government, then we will always find ourselves tripped up when the most core issues never get resolved. You know, every single issue that touches society disproportionately impacts Indigenous people worse. Every single one, every single one, whether it's mining, whether it's the environment, whether it's forest fires, whether it's food security, whether it's police, whether it's schools, whether it's universities, whether it's healthcare, every single one, and the fact that the broad left, whether through its unions or through uh, social movement organizations or whatever, have not systematically find found ways to Pick at these issues, not call attention to them, not lobby government to change them, but to actually do the work to undo the injustices built into every one of the systems in which these groups operate is a really huge problem. I mean, not to even mention that, of course, a lot of these organizations have colonialism built within them, and then they they themselves uphold colonialism. This is a kind of another side of this, which is even more sticky. But understanding that is like... So fundamental to doing any left wing work in this country that if you are listening and you're like, I have not really thought about this in this like kind of movement that I'm doing or in the work that I'm involved in, like get on thinking about it, get on organizing around it and try to figure out what kinds of things have been missed or glossed over or not taken a priority of that. Unless you target those issues, nothing gets better for anybody. Yeah,
0: and I just want us to also be really critical of taking, like, the the easy road, right? Like, I feel like um, in the last 20 years or so, there's just been this, like, idea that, okay, if you're, if you're really active on these issues, the way to do that is to, like, I don't know – Be an academic or something, you know, like just, you know, read and write about it, maybe tweet about it, something like that, like which, you know, is great and necessary. We need thinkers and so on. But I think there's a reason why so many people on the left take that road and 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 don't take maybe a more difficult a road that is a little bit more difficult, like the next step, the what comes after the thinking it's the doing. And, uh, I, you know, if you're listening to this and, um, that includes you, if it it feels like I'm talking about you, I'm, I'm not saying that to say that, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of doing this work, um, in the Academy is bad, but I, but I am saying that there is a way that even some of the places where we can figure out ways to become subversive are entirely a part of the structure of colonialism itself. And the structure of colonialism, much like the structures of capitalism, can subsume um, even places where we try to be subversive and make it work for colonialism. And so we should be thinking about that as well. If we're super comfortable in a space, it's probably not a space that's doing what it needs to be
1: doing if we're really serious about decolonization. Totally. Totally. Now, we've talked a lot about unions and their role in fighting a lot of these forces. And there are some good examples out there as well. You know, my, my union or our union uniform helped to pay for a boat to drag the Red River in Winnipeg back when activists were calling for support to do that kind of work and look for the bodies of murdered and missing Indigenous women and men uh, in the Red River there. But unions right now, and this is the pivot to the next issue, unions right now seem to be kind of having, I don't want to say a moment because that's kind of overused. But there seems to be a convergence of issues, and I was so struck by the the, the comments made by SEGAFTRA President Fran Drescher, which is like so funny to watch someone who you know as the nanny <laughs> be the president of this of this union, SAG-AFTRA. Talk about their issues and fighting things like greedy management, who has made tons of money in the last five years. and They're not sharing that money with the workers. And also they want to replace us all with AI. And then hearing the exact same thing from the Longshoremen's Union in British Columbia for why they had an almost two week strike to fight against the massive profits of the Employers Association uh, companies and to fight against uh, technology taking their jobs, and then to also hear uh, the same echoes of metro grocery workers across the greater Toronto area that are about to go on strike over the exact same issues. It's, it's a really amazing <laughs> convergence of, of, of problems, of, of campaigns, of fights that are happening right now. Yeah, I think, you know,
0: that that issue
1: of of technology, but also I think part of what's
0: happening, part of this convergence moment is the, the way that the pandemic really um, made even more stark the gap between the ultra wealthy and everyone else. I think, you know, people are definitely feeling that everywhere and are searching for ways to fight against that, you know, billionaire um, class, the people who like control so much of everything and increasingly are turning towards their unions. And uh, it's been great, you know, uh, the me, when I go to Capoeira, I, uh, my Capoeira classes, I pass by SAG AFTRA and I pass by um, the WGA. And uh, I pass by lots of picket lines as I go. So it's it's been really great to, to witness all of this. And uh, we should probably also mention that the um, sister union in Canada, ACTRA, has been locked out for about a year from the Institute of Canadian Agencies, which is responsible for uh, producing commercials across Canada. So there, you know, like there's a lot of, of this labor activity that's going on. And yeah, I mean, Nora, the stuff around uh, technology, we, we've spoken before about how like the, this idea that AI can just like replace uh, humans is like really uh, bizarre. And also like, you know, if especially when it comes to Arts. It's like, you know, part of part of what makes art art is the creation process of art. Like, are you going to talk to the A.I. about how the art was created? Like very, very bizarre. Like it's a weird conception. It, and it takes someone who doesn't, I don't know, understand art in order to think that that's a, a possibility, that that's something that can be replicated. Um, but the other thing that it makes me think about, too, is how uh, how we have become how, how we have not, Hmm, how do I put this into words? We have a great episode where we spoke about like, what if we just didn't work as much, you know, like what if we, it's one of our most popular episodes that we've done on this podcast where it's like, what if we were not so attached to work? And I think in a moment where technology seems to be making a shift and I'm, I'm, and not at all advocating for AI to take over all of this stuff. But I do think that there's a way that perhaps um, technology can make many of our lives easier. And perhaps we don't need to uh, live in an economy that is just solely dependent on, um, uh, on the majority of the population of the earth working for a, a small minority of billionaires to continue to make them lots and lots of money. I don't know.
1: Maybe (laughs) that seems pretty utopic, Sandy. I don't know. Can we can we imagine uh, uh, that (laughs) into reality? A whole new economy. I think we can. I don't know. So I don't I I also don't know if you saw the statistics um, come out from StatsCan this past week. Our generation, Sandy, we're about the same age, is paying 275.8 percent more than what it's bringing in every month In income. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that's almost three times. We are paying almost three times in debt what we are making in income. And it's very fascinating to me that we've allowed uh, this situation to become what it has because that is a fucking crisis. That's a crisis. And I, I, you know, at the same time, the total amount of money that's owed by Canadians surpasses the gross national product. That's another landmark that we've surpassed this past year. And one of the few income redistribution mechanisms that we have in society, I mean, there are others, but probably the most powerful and effective are unions, because unions are able to fight bosses who are greedy for more money to give to the workers. And then that does improve the lots of other workers in similar industries. Now, unions, of course, have been under strain and uh, have tons of room to improve. Uh, certainly in the last 30 years, they have not been unharmed by neoliberal reforms. But the, 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 the particular focus on machines replacing work is something that I am so fascinated by. Because it's like, here's something that is true. Machines cannot make you a profit. Human labor is the only thing that can generate profit. Machines will help in that situation. They will make perhaps things more efficient. Maybe they can reduce the number of people working for you. But I think it is very, very clear that the only thing that machines do is it supplants labor and puts labor somewhere else and is recreating society such that the people who do visible labor – will never come in contact with the people who do invisible labor, creating two very different classes of worker who uh, lose. I mean, the workers who do invisible labor might not be in Canada. They might be so invisible that that we, the the end receiver, don't see them at all. It makes them a lot more vulnerable to being exploited because it's harder for them to organize because they're invisible, but so too are their colleagues. And I think that that is the direction that we're heading. now. There's not enough people saying this and there's not enough people talking about this because the future of work discussion tends to be uh, very liberal, very dominated by understanding uh, liberalism as still being something that is not only good, but that is enduring and that isn't under threat. And it's like. Okay, no, we're we are certainly hurtling towards something different. And every single checkout, self service checkout that is, is placed into a supermarket. It isn't just that it's that's reducing jobs. It's that that's also like increasing other problems beyond what um, that what management or owners are willing to actually admit, though, I'm sure that they know.
0: I really like the way that you phrase that—that um, that it is—it's creating two different classes of worker that that don't uh, come into contact with each other, and it, it kind of mirrors what we were just talking about with respect to colonialism, doesn't it? And it kind of mirrors what a lot of of the issues in our world how they function. Um, you create a system where you are dependent on um, on the complete exploitation and um, downtrotting of of indigenous people, of, of black people, of making sure that not everybody can f- afford homes, can afford shelter. Like you create a system that is based on that. And then you do whatever you can to make sure that there's the, 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 the majority of society never come into contact with that group of people. It's the same playbook. And it is curious, as you said, that not enough people are talking about this. Given that
1: we should be so good at recognizing it now. Well, I I don't think that we uh, are very good at recognizing. In fact, I actually think that there's not actually a reason we should be good at recognizing it. I think I disagree with you. Uh, Think about the way that all of the conversations about working remote work or working from home have happened. It's always on the terms that journalists are most comfortable with having this conversation. There's more flexibility. People have more control over their schedule. There's some more surveillance of management and that kind of thing. The conversation doesn't tend to get out of that very narrow frame that we used to have offices and now we have people working from home. Then you'll have a story like I, I saw circulating on Twitter this past week about just how much office buildings have been devalued. And that, you know, huge amounts of office buildings are just empty, right, that that, that they're probably always going to be empty. People are always going to be working from home. But the, the impact that that has on society and on social control is – incredible. It's so incredible, because it means that like, number one, what you trade off in going into the office, you, um, you now take on surveillance, what you trade off in more flexibility is now a lack of any kind of human contact during the day that isn't necessarily like through email or through text, or just through serving someone who you might be serving over the phone. Then we have absolutely no concept of how important it is for us to have in our lives real people, points of contact, who are not our friends and family, who we see regularly, who we form superficial relationships with, but that we share with them moments in our lives that are fundamental there's no conversation like this at all. And instead, it's all about, oh my God, the robots are going to replace us and, oh, you know, uh, AI is going to um, create uh, a new version of the nanny and Fran Drescher is going to be the nanny for the next 200 years or uh, they can just take uh, our voices, Sandy, and make Sandy and Nora for the rest of, of time if they, if, if they wanted to do that. And it's like humans cannot be replaced by robots to make someone else a profit. There will always be exploitation. And if you don't see the exploitation, all that means is that the exploitation has gone underground it might have been outsourced overseas it might have been outsourced to another community it might be outsourced to a part of your town that you never go but it is there and the and the increasing desperation of people working shitty jobs for no money with no job security who are completely vulnerable to being abused by their by their employers. That's what the technology creates. And that's why these unions have identified it as being such a threat. And it has taken way too long for anybody with any platform in this country to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like it isn't just uh, a checkout counter is removing an employee. There's still employees. They will still be doing work where are they doing that work? Who is the the employee that's now there? And then what happens and all of a sudden the employee has uh, the ability to stop someone who they think was stealing from the self-service machine, but this person didn't know how to use it or they were stealing or they weren't stealing. But then all of the other systemic oppressions come back into play because the person was black or the person was indigenous and they were suspicious. And then all of a sudden the police are like, well, they didn't weigh that thing properly. And so now we're going to charge them. I mean, It's so obvious that these are tools of control and thank God that we do have unions who are fighting these tools of control, but that is not enough. (laughs) It is a small fraction of the population doing that work.
0: Yeah. um, As you were talking about that, I was uh, thinking about the ways that in which this is also um, related to our very, very stunted mental health conversation in our society. Absolutely. But also have you seen the spate of recent articles about how working from home is like really bad for your health oh no i haven't seen this you, yeah it seems like a campaign i think it's a well it's it's very much similar to when previously on this podcast we've discovered that there were these um articles that just kept appearing everywhere talking about like the increase of um of theft in places like Walmart and CVS. And then we realized that it was like this this giant campaign and that these articles were repeated year after year, actually, at a particular time. And it was just, you know, lazy journalism, just kind of repeating a, uh, a press release. Well, I mean... These have become a little bit more popular, too, and I wouldn't be surprised if this was also some sort of campaign. But a spate of articles talking about how working from home is actually quite bad for your health. Um, It talks about how, you know, it's really important to get up, to move around, to have uh, conversations with people and so on, as though these are all things that are universally um, accessible to anyone who doesn't work from home like it's mm. can, can can we also talk about how like work is bad for your health, like in a lot of ways, you know, you don't get a spate of articles like that. And so what you're pointing out about journalists being really comfortable having these sorts of conversations in particular terms, I mean, it's, that's absolutely the case. And it's, it's not too difficult to, to point out um, those contradictions if you think about it. So, you know, I don't know, like I, I hear you on saying that there's no reason we should be able to. To identify it, but I don't know. I think we sh- I think we should be able to. I think that the the patterns of exploitation and marginalization and um, exploitative power are so consistent that if we are the types of people who are um, positioning ourselves against that, we should be able to recognize it when we see it.
1: Yeah, like I I, I hope so. I hope we can. But it also does feel like there is just so much work to do that people aren't sure where to start. And I don't know if you saw last week, but I got uh, to talk about the Canadian Freelance Union to someone at the CBC, and there was an article about it. And what followed that article were a lot of very cool uh, cold calls from people who are wondering how they can organize their own kind of freelancing kind of thing. And also, there was interest from I mean, I talked to one talk radio station in Edmonton, and I don't think the guy is a particularly left wing guy. Maybe I'm wrong, but it was like a super friendly, like, yeah, you guys need to fight the, the man and you're the little guy and all this kind of stuff, which is true. And it's and it was really you know great to have a good conversation with someone on talk radio. And it it just was like, this is what we're missing is we're missing any. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it just goes back to we don't have adults in the room anywhere, and we're, we're just missing money. Like if I had the money to hire people, I would hire all of these people and be like, Hey, go, go and do this work. You know, or if I had the, uh, but I don't, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, one person but there are people who listen to this podcast who do have access to money and so this is I think where the unions have such a huge responsibility that yes of course you need to be fighting these things within your memberships and you need to be fighting them around collective bargaining time but also you have a responsibility to externalize the the strength and the pressure that you have in your own industries on into other issues And to bring this back to the first half of this conversation, this is exactly where we can see like there are two paths towards changing things in Canada. There is a path towards actually changing things in Canada and there's a path towards reinforcing things the way that they are with maybe minor tweaks. If we look I mean, if we imagine where we were maybe 20 years ago, I think that the myth of progress was telling us that things were always getting better and that was just the normal rhythm of liberalism was that liberalism course corrected so much that we were always just getting better. And I think that we can see very clearly now in the last 40 years that is not at all what has happened and that institutions like unions and like other groups on the left have not been able to resist neoliberalism such that they've been effective. So they've been highly rendered ineffective in a lot of the campaigns that they run. And so so for most of the time we choose reform. We choose the easy option that we think makes the most sense. Either it's the most strategic, it's the uh, most obvious, it's where our members are at or whatever you want to add in there. And that is not going to cut it. That is not going to cut it, not with the extreme heat, not with the forest fires, not with everything that's happening within society right now. It is not going to cut it. And there are far too many groups out there that are far too complacent with this stuff that either, you know, will fight for it when their collective agreement comes up, but then that's it. We have to externalize this stuff to everybody, folks. And until we do, I mean, we are sunk.